Amazon's got everything you need for your dorm. From everyday essentials and clothing to school supplies to bedding so comfortable, you'll sleep right through your roommate's new hobby. Save on all things college at Amazon. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Stay cool this summer with AC Pro and O'Reilly Auto Parts. Right now, get a $15 O'Reilly Auto Parts gift card after mail-in rebate with the purchase of select AC Pro ready-to-use refrigerant products that include a hose and gauge. Beat the heat before you hit the road with AC Pro at your local O'Reilly Auto Parts store. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Hello there, welcome to another episode of This Week in History with me, your host, Dan the Viking. And we have a different episode for you again this week. We're flipping to 1943 and possibly one of the greatest aeronautical raids in the Second World War. That is the Dam Busters. For those of you who did guess that correct, you're correct, it's the Dam Busters. Now, I think it was quite an easy picture. For those of you who are clued up on your Second World War history, um, I think it was quite an easy one to guess. And it is a very, very famous story. It's a story that has lived around for a long, long time um, and is still spoken about today in the Royal Air Force. Now, first things first, before we get into the episode, as I'm sure you all know, we like to do a little bit of housekeeping. So firstly, I want to say hello to Gary, my new Patreon member. Um, To those of you who are on Patreon, I've had a few uh, recently that I've joined. If you do want a fridge magnet, you've got to send me your address because I can't send them without it, unfortunately. I don't know. So if you're on Patreon, send me a message on Patreon. You can do it on Facebook. Um, It's entirely up to you. For most of you who who are on Patreon are on the Facebook group. So you can do it on that as well. Just send me your address and let me know if you would like your fridge magnet with a little signature on it. And we shall get that out to you. Now, back to the story. What we need to realize in the Second World War is the importance of the dams and the infrastructure to the German war machine. Now, this goes for every country. It goes for the English war machine and the American war machine. Every country needed that infrastructure. Now... The Dambuster Raid was 1943, so you would think that they probably planned it maybe five or six months in advance. This plan was actually put into place in the 1930s. This was put in around 1934-35. Adolf Hitler came to power in Germany in 1933 and pretty much revamped the German economy. He revamped their infrastructure. He revamped their... Uh, their army, their military power and things like that. So he did quite a lot. The problem is, as soon as he started going against the Treaty of Versailles, everybody in Europe woke up and realized, hang on a minute, he shouldn't be doing this. Now, England and many other countries had a policy of appeasement. 
where they would basically allow Germany to pretty much get on with what they were doing as long as they weren't encroaching on anybody and they weren't um, hurting anybody. So they sort of, for the first few years of Hitler, watching him build this German army, this German powerhouse, um, they sort of sat back and let him get on with it until he started invading other countries and then obviously they had to step in. So he drew attention to himself and obviously the British were paying attention to things that they were doing in Germany. And one of the things they noticed was that they required a lot of iron to create the tanks, uh, the planes, the weapons, everything like that. And the main power source that they had was in a place called the Ruhr Valley in Germany, where they built dams. Now, these dams supplied water and power to the industries below, below the valley. Um, it, it was said that roughly at this time, it took almost 100 tons of water to create one ton of iron. So you can see how important these dams were. And this is right, this is before the Second World War had even started. They pinpointed certain dams that should they need to attack, these would be the dams to attack. I think initially they they thought there was about 11, but the three main ones um, that they went for was the Myrna, the Adar, and the Sorpe Dam. So they were all three big dams. These three dams were essential to the German war effort. And if the British could destroy these dams, then they were laughing, basically. They could, they could put a big blow in the German war, war machine. Remember, this was a plan that was put into place after the, the, the beginning of the Second World War. But the thought process started well before then. Obviously, when war broke out, they realized that these dams were key and very essential to being attacked. Um, very hard to attack a dam. Now, the reason for that, as you sh I'm assuming nowadays, you would literally get a lasered, I don't know, lasered bomb. I don't suppose they're even called bombs anymore. Missile or whatever. And they are pinpoint accurate. In the Second World War, the bombing raids that they conducted, on average, were about five miles out of accuracy range. So, as you can imagine, flying over a dam in a Lancaster bomber, opening the bomb bay doors, releasing hundreds of bombs all at once. This is what they did. They dropped hundreds out of out one time. Um, and on average, they were hitting five miles away from where they should have been hitting. So, you're thinking, right, how are we going to hit this dam? Because we can't hit them. You know, we, when there's no way they're going to hit it. Um, they, you know, they, the, the Air Force tried to, to come up with a few ideas. One of the ideas was to, to fly lower. Well, that's all well and good, but it's, it's not, uh, still not exactly accurate. Um, they had ideas of firing torpedoes, which would have been a lot more sensible, except for the fact the Germans had thought about that and put metal, um, nets across the dams. Uh, two sets of nets in other words if a torpedo went in it would hit this net first if it even broke through the first one it would hit the second one um, and they would you know the, the nets would save the dam themselves so the, they didn't have much room to get these torpedoes in to get a torpedo 
now you're talking instead of just hitting the water they need to be pinpoint accurate to about maybe a 20 meter space to be able to drop this torpedo in before it can hit the dam in other words it's impossible so they had a couple of ideas this was one there's a few others batted around one of them was to send paratroopers down um, and charge the dam and blow it up that way um, again very very dangerous and the loss of life for that would be extremely high these dams were protected it wasn't like they were flying at a, a dam that was unguarded they had battery towers on them and a lot of gunners um, so they were well protected because germany knew the danger of losing one of these dams at this point uh, raf bomber command were scratching their heads they really didn't have a plan they, they didn't know what to do um the torpedoes weren't going to work they weren't going to send in paratroopers they could try bombing raids um but the damage that would have been done to it had been very superficial um, really to blow up these dams they needed to hit right at the base of the dam um, which is virtually impossible without a torpedo so they turned to a man named barnes wallace now barnes wallace was an inventor uh, he was quite well known in Britain, he was quite well off um, as as he had a good standing in with the Royal Air Force. He actually designed the British Wellington bomber. So this was a man who knew what he was talking about. He wasn't just some random person off the streets. He really knew his his aeronautical ideas. Barnes Wallace also identified the dams in the Ruhr Valley as a prime target to be hit. So this was in around 1940. Now, when you look at the three dams that they were they were attacking, they had what are called gravity dams, which are the Myrna and the Ada Dam are gravity dams, where they are built high, almost like a, a flat edge on one side, which holds the water pressure, and then a triangle out, um, which obviously the more the further they go out, the more pressure that the uh, they can withstand. Some of them are curved, uh, so I believe um, some of the bigger dams uh, uh, in America are curved. We don't have very many dams in this country. Um, we do have a few, um, but most of them, they, they tend to be like a, a triangle. And then at the base of the dam, there's another sort of block of stone to, to again, to alleviate some of the pressure. So that's your gravity dam and the other type of dam which the Sorpe is, which is an earth dam. Now, earth dams are slightly harder to attack. And the reason for that is they're almost like a pyramid shape. So instead of obviously as a gravity dam, they're flat against the water. Um, as you can imagine, an earth dam is sort of as a, as, a, as a pyramid where the water can come up. But then, you know, they're a lot stronger structure, I would say, um, but obviously a lot harder to build. So there's not that many of those types of dams around, I don't believe. So Wallace now knew what dams to attack, but he didn't exactly know how. He came up with an idea of a one-ton bomb. Basically, he called it the big bomb, um, and it was essentially loading into a cargo bay, dropped as close to the dam as physically possible, where it would sink right to the bottom. So the whole point of blowing up a dam, you need to blow it up at the weakest point of the structure, which is right at the bottom where the most amount of water pressure is. Virtually 
it's it's almost impossible. They the uh, air ministry sort of almost gave it an okay, and then decided actually no, it's probably not going to work, and, and took it off the table. So his big bomb idea was, you know, they it was a, it was a good idea, but but they weren't going to go with it because they just didn't see how it would have worked. Um, he, his, his idea was if you could create enough pressure um, so that you wouldn't actually have to hit the dam, you could hit the water, and enough pressure would, would cause the dam to break. But again, they, they just weren't they weren't 100% on it and weren't willing to risk aircraft and lives over something that may or may not work. So Barnes-Wallace, he abandoned this idea and he moved on to the next one. And with a team of researchers, they came up with a way of absolutely destroying a dam. Now, they believed that before this, they believed that obviously attacking the dam wall itself would work. They believed that attacking the water would work. They believed a lot of things. They did a lot of tests and a lot of trials on it. And in 1942, they finally realized that if you were to place a bomb or a charge right up against the dam wall, so basically is pushed into the dam wall, then it would crack the fabrics and the foundations of it. And with the immense water pressure behind it, it would be enough to follow through and break the dam. So they, they realized that, I mean, now, it, when you say it, it does make so much sense that you're more likely to crack a wall by putting a bomb next to it rather than near it. But they had to test it and make sure it was going to work. With the research um, that they used, they calculated the amount of explosives that would be needed to break the dam wall, especially on the Myrna, because that was the, the highest or the, the biggest dam wall. Uh, they calculated it was roughly six and a half thousand pounds that would be needed just to break the dam wall. The advantage the British had was at now, at this point in the war, they had the most formidable bomber available, which had a capacity to carry that size of a bomb. Before that, they didn't have it. And now they had the world-famous Lancaster bomber. Now, this is one of my favorite aircraft. I've seen these fly. I have been to the RAF Museum in Hendon, which ironically is about a five minute walk from my dad's house um it is an absolutely amazing aircraft um they have in the raf museum and it's the the aircraft were numbered um and they some of them had letters some of them had numbers uh, this one particular the one in um the war museum in hendon is the s for sugar it's, that's what it's called s for sugar the lancaster bomber um, and on the side of it it has loads of little bomb paintings on it where the amount of uh, missions it's been on, they're absolutely amazing aircraft um, and well worth going to have a look at if you ever get a chance. So anyway, getting digressing a little bit because I am absolutely in love with that aircraft. Um, basically, the plan was to get a deadly accurate bomb. Now, Barnes-Wallace looked back through history and he looked at Admiral Nelson. Now, this wasn't actually covered in my Lord Nelson um, video, uh, video podcast, um, but he used to use the cannons. To fire further, he would use what was called the one-bounce method, where he would aim the cannonball into the water and bounce it off the water so it would fire further 
than a regular cannon. Now, Nelson did this to a cannonball in a ship. Barnes-Wallace realized that if you put backspin on the ball, so, so that the underside of the ball, as it's rolling, rolls with the water, uh, when you fired it, you could actually fire a bomb two and a half miles with the bounce. So this was something that they were going to try and, and work out. Could they actually get a bomb to come out of a Lancaster bomber, hit the water, and bounce all the way along the river to the dam, to hit the dam? Now, it sounds mental that you would bounce explosives across the water, um, but that was the plan. So he tested it. He used his daughter's... Um, they had like in, in these days they had uh, metal bathtubs that could come in and out of the house. Um, he used his daughter's bathtub and her marbles to fire them with a catapult at the water in the bathtub, and he used the backspin of that to project it and see how it worked. He then took it to a laboratory and basically perfected the idea with higher tech equipment. Now. It's all well and good testing it in situations like that. Realistically, they needed to see how it would work dropped out of a plane. Now, the advantage of adding the backspin to the, the bomb was so that when it hit the wall of the dam, it wouldn't detonate. It would hit the wall, drop into the water, but the backspin would actually pull it right into the dam. And they worked out that around 30 feet, this this bomb would explode. Now, it sounds really, really technical, and it was, and it took a lot of testing. And on December uh, 1942, they tested it with a Wellington bomber. They had to remove the Bombay doors and add the equipment in. Now, these were static bombs. There was no charge to these because obviously they were testing them. But... The principle would have worked the same. And the point was to roll the bomb backwards inside the aircraft and drop it and test the different heights that it would need to be dropped at, the different speeds, the weight of the bombs, the shape of the bombs, and so on and so forth to actually get it to perfection. Now, on the first attempt, they dropped uh, the bomb and the casing broke on the bomb, so it failed. Added to that, he then obviously realized they needed to strengthen the casing on the bomb. So that was the first issue that they had. So it took them a few weeks, but they got the perfection that they needed. They got the right ratio of backspin. They got the right airspeed of the aircraft. And they got roughly the right height for the aircraft to drop the bombs. Now, he had to take this to Bomber Command before he actually... This wasn't. This was just him testing it. This was his ideas. This wasn't something the RAF had endorsed at this point. So he wrote it all down on a paper, on papers, um, which was called Air Raids on Dams or Air Attacks on Dams. And a copy of this got to Air Chief Marshal um, Arthur Harris. Now, his nickname was Bomber. Believe it or not, he was actually in charge of Bomber Command. So his name was Bomber Harris. If you ever heard Bomber Harris, that's Arthur Harris, Air Chief Marshal. Now, Harris was not a fan. He did not like the idea. He didn't like inventors, to be honest. 
Um, and he just thought there's too many ifs and buts and maybes to for it actually to, to work. Um, so he dismissed it. He basically said, it's not going to work. I'm not happy with the idea. And trying to bounce a five-ton bomb of explosives across a river on the hope that it might hit a dam is pretty unlikely to happen. Barnes Wallace was not deterred by this. He uh, he actually made an appointment and went to visit Bomber Harris and showed him the tapes of the test trials of the runs that they'd done and showed them how it worked. Obviously, once he's viewed the tapes and he can see, actually, this it's not a bad idea, um, he admitted that it, potential, it had potential. It wasn't guaranteed, but it had potential to work. Bomb was actually, or the tapes of the bomb, was actually seen by Dudley Howe, who was uh, head of the Navy at this point, or head of the, uh, he was called the First Sea Lord, so he was, he was to do with the Navy. Um, but he saw the potential of using this bomb in a, in a naval battle. So in other words, sending the planes directly at the ship with the bomb bounce the bomb so it hits the really hard armoured side of the ship but the backspin on it would drag the bomb under the ship to the hull where it's a lot weaker and detonate underneath the ship so this was taken as uh, you know as a, a naval idea at first the bouncing bomb as it was called was actually used by the mosquitoes uh, the mosquito bombers uh, during the second world war now the they ended up, when once it had been designed to be used, they attempted to use it against the Japanese fleet. Um, unfortunately, at the time they actually came to use these bombs in action, um, so obviously once they'd fitted them and taken all this time to prepare the bomb and things like that, done the trials with the mosquitoes, um, by the time they actually were ready to be used, the war had finished. So they were never actually... They never actually worked in naval warfare because they never got a chance to. Flashing back, we go back to 1943. And in February 1943, Barnes-Wallace is called into the office where he is told that all work on the dam-busting project has to stop because as far as the, uh, the, uh, the Royal Air Force are concerned, it's a no-go project and we're not going to bother with it. So Wallace says, well, if that's your opinion, I quit, um, and handed his resignation in, to which it was basically, he was called a mutineer for, for leaving. A few weeks later, they put it back on the table, and Barnes-Wallace was told that they're actually going to do it. Uh, they were given a date of May the 26th. Now, the reason for that date is because it was after spring where the rain had fallen and the dams would have been full. And it was a day where there was a full moon and the most amount of light possible for the raiders to actually know where they were going. Fortunately, it only gave Barnes-Wallace about eight weeks to perfect the bomb. So you've got to remember, up until this point, he's got a bomb that works, he knows it works, He's never exploded, never used it with explosives. He's never dropped it out of a Lancaster. And he doesn't know the speed, height, or anything like that out of the Lancasters to fly it. Not only that, they do not have a squadron that is 
ready to do this. So they've got eight weeks to get a squadron together to teach these guys how to fly this brand new aircraft and to fly it the way that it needs to be flown and to drop this bomb with pinpoint accuracy under gunfire in a foreign country where they may not be in the right place because let's be honest GPS hadn't been invented this was all map work they didn't know exactly where they were when they were dropping bombs to the point that even when Britain were dropping bombs on the German front line they were dropping them in the wrong country sometimes because they didn't actually know exactly where they were. So it's very difficult to get this all done. And now they've only got an eight-week time period to get it finished. First thing to do was to create a squadron designed for the bomb and particularly for the dam busters. Now, they were 617 squadron and they were based at RAF Scampton. Now, RAF Scampton is probably a 15-minute drive from my house. It is an unbelievable base, and it is the home of the Red Arrows. So, they are now not a bomber squadron. They are the Red Arrows. Um, but, that's well, that's RAF Scampton. The 617 squadron does still exist, um, but I don't believe they're based at Scampton anymore. But, for this period, they were based at RAF Scampton. And you know Lincoln at all uh, Lincoln is known as Bomber County um, it's always been called Bomber County Lincolnshire and that is because that's where the bombers come from you know the Lancaster bombers were basically bred in Lincoln uh, in Lincolnshire so um, it's it's a pretty cool cool place to be living near to be honest the squadron was to be led by wing commander Guy Gibson Gibson was possibly one of the best pilots uh, we ever had. Um, by the time this squadron was formed, uh, he was highly decorated. He had the Distinguished Flying Order, which is one of the highest medals you can get in the RAF. He'd done over 150 missions, um, and he was only 24 years old. Gibson put together his squadron with his ground crew and everything like that. He put them all together. Um, the age ranges from around 20 to 32 years old. So these were young men. Um, and they were from all over the world. So they weren't just English. There was Americans, Canadians, Australians, and New Zealanders uh, part of this squadron. So this was a real international squadron. It wasn't just the English that did this. Now, this squadron were told, they were not given any information on the targets, but they were told that they were to fly Lancaster bombers at a low level, at a target over water, at night time. And that's all they were told. A lot of the squadron at first believed they were attacking the German battleship, the Tirpitz. Um, but that obviously wasn't the case. They didn't know. They weren't told. Obviously, they weren't told because if anybody let it out, um, then it could blow the whole thing up. So... They redesigned everything um, for the Lancaster and the bomb itself. Now, <clears throat> it's known as the bouncing bomb. Realistically, it was a depth charge. So what it did, it was a revolving death, depth, uh, death charge. Well, I suppose it was a death charge, but it's a depth charge. Um, it was uh, The outer casing was roughly 50 inches and inside it were three um, pistons that would detonate the 6,500 pounds worth of explosives inside the bomb. 
So the outer casing had to be quite strong. It also had a time delay of around 90 seconds. So just in case the pistols didn't fire and the bomb didn't explode, uh, 90 seconds after drop, it would have exploded anyway. The plan was to put almost like a barrel outer casing on the bomb. So it would be almost spherical. Now, this was done similar to how a barrel would be made today uh, with wooden slats uh, wrapped around with metal casing around it to keep it in place. Now, on testing, the casings exploded and splintered off. Uh, one of them actually damaged one of the Lancasters so it couldn't land properly, which meant the squadron of 20 was now down to 19 because this Lancaster wasn't safe to fly. So they took the outer casing off and reinforced the uh, the metal casing so it's actually not a ball the bomb that was dropped was essentially a cylinder uh, very similar to an oil drum it would it would look very similar to an oil drum they did a few more trials they removed the bomb doors from the lancaster and with this the weight of the bomb they were realizing that flying the aircraft at 150 feet was causing the bomb to hit the water and either sink straight into the water because of the weight and the speed it was hitting, or it was causing it to bounce once and then sink. Um, basically, they realized that the Lancasters were being flown too high from the surface. Bearing in mind, 150 feet is extremely low for, um, for a Lancaster to fly anyway, um, especially any aircraft really that size to fly that low is very difficult. Um, so they decided to drop the height from 150 feet to just 60 feet. Now we'll put that into perspective. The Lancaster bomber, the wingspan on the Lancaster bomber was 31 meters from tip to tip, which is 101 feet, which means the aircraft at 60 feet couldn't even turn because if it turned, one of those wings was hitting the water. Literally, one wing was roughly 50 feet. So it was almost impossible to fly a Lancaster so accurately at 60 feet. And to make matters worse for Bomber Command, the altimeters on the Lancaster wouldn't work at 60 feet, just making it even more difficult for them to actually fly the planes at the correct altitude. So they had to come up with a new plan, a plan to make these Lancasters easier to fly and easier to understand at 60 feet. Now, for anybody who has seen the Lancaster bombers, they have a um, sort of a, a gun underneath the the bomb, bomb doors. So it's almost like a circle glass, I don't know, half a bowl sort of thing um, that's underneath the Lancaster. Now, these are normally for gunners underneath the, the flight deck what they used this for was a spotter and the spotter would they would have two torches one at the front and one at the back and when they reached 60 feet the outer rings of each circle on the torch would touch and therefore they knew when they the two lights were touching they were at 60 feet and it was that guy's job underneath the lancaster to tell the pilot, yes, you're at 60 feet, no, you're too high, you're too low, you need to come up a bit, go down, whatever. That was his job, to make sure that they stayed at 60 feet. So that was one of the modifications they had to make to the Lancaster. 
Another modification they had to make was when you look at the normal Lancaster bombers, they have what's called a tail gunner. So at the top of the Lancaster, there was a dome, another dome, um, which would have guns attached to it. And this guy was there to, well, he was a tail gunner. So he was there to shoot down any, any oncoming enemy aircraft. The problem with the way the Lancaster worked for this bombing raid, that was not a sensible thing to have. So they had to remove that top gun bay um, and move him right to the front underneath the front gunner's feet. So they still had the front gunner and underneath him was where he, this guy now sat. It was a very, very cramped seat. Um, and actually, after they did this, um, they actually started fitting all Lancaster bombers with stirrups at that front gunner's seat. So his feet weren't dangling in the face of the guy below him. These were really, really tight, cramped spaces that these guys had to fit into. So they tested these, uh, these aircraft very, very vigorously over the time period they had. Um, and like I said, they had 20, 20 planes to deal with. Um, this was their squadron base was 20. And during the tests, they found that if the pilots dropped the bombs too close to the water, the spray from the water would damage the, the plane because they couldn't get the planes out of the way in time. And this is why they ended up with 19 uh, planes because one of them was uh, in, in, inoperable uh, after the, the test. They couldn't get it fixed in time for the actual raid they needed it for. So the, they were ready. They were ready to go. And they had they'd done enough practice. They knew exactly how far they needed to be from the, from the wall before they dropped it. They knew exactly what speed to do, what revolutions on the bomb, and the height that the aircraft needed to be at. Now, the problem is, is although you know this stuff, it's very hard to aim a bouncing bomb at night to drop it at the right point in order to create contact. Now, if you drop the bomb too early, it's not going to bounce far enough to hit the wall. And if you drop it too late, it's either going to bounce up too high, in other words, it's going to hit the, the Lancaster that's in the air, or it's going to bounce over the target and not do the damage that it's supposed to do. It might do a little bit of damage to the villages below, but it's not, it's not going to do what they need it to do. So they worked out that the distance between the two main points of the dam, so as the dam arcs round, there were two turrets that were 700 feet apart. And so they worked it out for the bomb to hit at the absolute perfect point. They needed to drop the bomb at 1,428 feet or 476 yards. If it was dropped at that point between the two turrets, the bomb should hit the target. So they built a little, it looks almost medieval, but they built a little sort of like a wooden triangle that they would put in line that was to scale. And as soon as the two corners of the triangle hit the two turrets, that was when the bomb was to be released. They worked it out as you, if you look down this, it was almost like, a, it's called a bomb site. But as they looked straight down, there would be two almost pins on each corner of the triangle. And if when those two pins hit the two turrets, that was the right distance to, to drop the bomb. So they, they worked all of it out basically to a minuscule point to get it, to perfect it. So on Sunday, May the 16th, all of the squadron, all 133 crew members were brought into a room and told what target they were to be attacking. Now this 
target. Like I said, a lot of them believed that they were supposed to be attacking the German battleship, the Tirpitz, which would have been a very, very dangerous mission, potentially more dangerous than the Dambusters mission itself. So a lot of them were quite relieved to realize that they were actually attacking a static object in uh, waters that weren't choppy. You know, you've got to remember, see if you're attacking something at sea, uh, you've got to judge the, the waves and things like that. You don't have to do that uh, on, on a dam. So they sat in this meeting um, or briefing and they were explained to by Barnes Wallace, the creator of the bomb, how it was supposed to work and how everything was supposed to work and how they were supposed to do it. You know, it was all well and good them doing the training, but now they had to put it into practice. Um, they came up with code names. The word goner was to be used if the bomb had dropped, hit the target, but hadn't breached the wall. The word dinghy was to be used as if they were to breach the Ada Dam. And if they were to breach the Myrna Dam, the code word, I am not going to say. The reason I'm not going to say it is for all of you guys who were aware of this, they actually used the code word for Guy Gibson's dog. Now, Guy Gibson's dog was a black Labrador, and at the time, his dog, his, the name, was the N-word. Now, I will not say it on, well, I won't say it, full stop, not regardless on the podcast or anything, I will not say the word. So, you've got to remember, this was 1943, it was a different time, it was the name of a dog. I know some, I had a couple of people comment saying, no, we know what it is, it does, it's not a big deal because it's historical fact rather than uh, meant in a derogatory or an offensive way. Um, one thing I will say is the people who messaged me, and there was about four or five, um, they were either English or Australian. So, um, I mean, mainly because English and Australian know this story, but also because we're a little bit more laid back, I think, in regards to using knowing that this would just be historical fact anyway i focused way too much on that because uh it's it, you know it's not in that way it's not meant in that way um but that that was the code word for a breach in the dam in the myrna dam so anyway we'll go to the actual raid now so the first group of lancasters to leave scampton was nine bombers that went in groups of three ten minutes apart so three, then 10 minutes, then three, then 10 minutes, then three. I'm sure you've worked that out yourselves. You don't need me to tell you that. Um, and they went for the Myrna Dam. And then from then, they they would move on to the Ada Dam if they managed to breach the Myrna. So if the first bomb managed to breach the Myrna, then all eight would then proceed to the Ada and so on and so forth. So there were five Lancasters uh, that would head to the Zorpe uh, Dam they actually went a slightly different route. So the first nine from RAF Scampton in Lincoln came straight across Norfolk into Belgium or Luxembourg, Belgium area, and then straight across to the Myrna Dam, whereas the five that attacked the Zorpe went directly east from RAF Scampton to the tip of Denmark and then straight down to the Zorpe Dam. They then had a third wave or final wave of five Lancasters, that would be in reserve. Uh, they left around about an hour and a half after the, the last group had left. 
they were reserves just in case they hadn't managed to breach the dam. They still had five planes left to attack. One of the uh, flight crew to one of the Lancasters actually wrote on the bomb. So um, I know Americans did did this in the Second World War. They used to write on the bombs, um, you know, little messages. So obviously they're not going to read them. <laughs> you know, it was exploded. But um, I don't know if it's a, a military thing or, or what, but one of the quotes that was written on one of the bombs was a probably one of the most famous quotes from Winston Churchill. Uh, never has so much been expected of so few. That was chalked onto one of the bombs that dropped in a, on a German dam. This quote was actually written by um, a man named Sergeant Garshevich, who was the navigation officer on one of the planes. Um, and yeah, he was uh, one of the few that didn't return. It was also a time of reflection for some of the guys. Uh, some of them played cricket some of them just enjoyed the last few hours of sunlight um for guy gibson his dog actually died um a few hours before that it was hit by a vehicle on the the main road on the a15 outside of scampton um which is a road that i drive down pretty much every day so um yeah he was actually killed there so it was it's quite a poignant point in history um to the point where I, I know I'm just going to digress a little bit here. I know I have a tendency to say, you know, we can't change history. We can only learn from it. And I think this is a prime example. Um, you know, never since, I don't believe, has anyone ever called a dog that. Um, but they are actually trying to remake the Dam Busters movie and change the name of the dog purely because of that. Um, and I don't think that's right. Um because at the end of the day, it's historical fact. It's not there to insult anybody. But like I said, I still won't say the word. But that that is, uh, he actually died the day before the dog. So Guy Gibson had a, quite a bit of a reflective time to deal with. Because this dog was almost the mascot for 617 Squadron. So they left. Anyway, they will, we'll, we'll move back onto the story. Uh, they left. They flew. Um, every plane encountered some sort of opposition on the way. Every plane was fired at on the way to the, the dams um, to the point that uh, Guy Gibson actually had to break radio silence at one point um, because they were in the middle of the the, uh, the Royal River um, because the amount of uh, attention that was being brought onto them, he had to, to let people know about it. However, Gibson's first three aircrafters, which was Gibson and two others, uh, they actually reached the Myrna Dam pretty much unharmed. The next three also were pretty much unharmed, and they managed to reach the dam as well. Unfortunately, the third group of three from the first wave, um, the pilot flight lieutenant Bill Astle, um, hit low cables um, on his journey, and the plane burst into flames and, and landed uh, in the countryside. So he didn't actually make it. So out of the first nine planes, only eight of them actually managed to make it to the first dam. So Gibson reaches the dam first, and he does a reconnaissance flight, a fly pass to see, one, what the dam looks like, because this is the first time they've ever actually seen it, and two, what defense the Germans are actually putting up. Now, there are guns on each of the towers, and there are guns at the village below, all shooting at the target. So they know there is quite a bit of resistance, um, but not not a stupid amount, but there is still enough to, to worry them. Um, 
He does his reconnaissance flight and he turns around and says, I'm going in. So as they make their approach to the dam, they're getting lower and lower and they've got these two big searchlights underneath or torches um, to create that figure of eight um, so they know they're at 60 feet. As they're approaching the dam, they're getting lower and lower to the water and closer and closer to this gunfire. The guy, uh, the front turret, the, the man in the front turret starts shooting at these towers. They they filled the the ammunition for the Lancaster, the, gu- the gun turrets, they filled them with tracer fire so they could see exactly where the bullets were going. Um, and as they got closer and closer and closer, they let the bomb go. The bomb actually hit. It bounced perfectly. It hit the dam exactly how it should have done. Um, but it didn't break the dam. And the signal goner was transmitted back to bomber headquarters. Uh, Flight Flight Lieutenant Hopgood was in the plane behind. Uh, He approached the dam and was actually shot. Uh, Not him personally, his aircraft was shot, um, which meant he released the bomb just slightly too late and it bounced over the dam. And I mean, it did actually end up exploding on a power station below the dam. So it did it did something, but it didn't do anything that it was supposed to do. It did, you know, it blew up a power station, but um, in, its, in essence, it, it didn't do what it was meant to do. The tanks actually exploded, um, and everyone on that plane was killed after they dropped their bomb. Um, the One of the bullets had gone through the engine, and they all died. The next man to attack was Flight Lieutenant um, Martin. Now, as he approached the dam, Guy Gibson uh, put his Lancaster alongside uh, alongside Martin and in an attempt to draw the enemy fire away from that target um, or at least to dumb down the amount of uh, enemy power there was at his, uh, at his aircraft. Martin's bomb didn't, didn't breach the dam and again the radio gunner was sent. The next wave of attack had arrived at this point uh, and that was... Wing Commander Young and his three aircraft. Young's aircraft did more damage to the Myrna Dam, but again, no breach. The next plane along was flown by Flight Lieutenant Maltby. Uh, His bomb hit the dam, and his bomb breached the dam. It broke the concrete, and, you know, the water was flowing through the dam. So the radio message was sent uh obviously n i and then fill out the rest yourself that was then transmitted back to england and after five attacks five out of nine aircraft one had been shot in the air and obviously didn't make it so five out of eight they dropped five bombs on this dam one completely missed four hit and then it exploded so you've got three aircraft left and they are approaching the next dam they've decided they've breached the Myrna they're now moving on to the Ada dam now the Ada dam was actually harder to attack they had to come in at a different angle and had to drop down very very quickly to get the airspeed needed whereas the Myrna dam they had quite a very long straight run at it with the Ada dam they had to come in and sharply turn to port side which is left hand side for those of you who aren't aware, but they to do a sharp turn to the left and pick up speed that way as they approach the dam. Otherwise, they wouldn't get enough speed to get the bombs into the right position. Uh, Flight Lieutenant Maudsley attacked first. 
um, and his bomb was released late, and he just didn't he didn't it didn't work, um, and he had to return home. On his way home, his his aircraft was actually shot down, um, and uh, no crew survived that either. And Knight had the last bomb, the last Lancaster bomber. Um, this was the last attack. One attack had hit and one attack had missed on the Ada Dam. And this was the last bomb they had on that first wave. And as he approached the dam, again, absolutely perfect drop. And this breached the, the Ada Dam. Now, for the, the code word for this dam was dinghy, and uh, that was transmitted across. Um, and they've managed to breach two dams already. They'd done, they've, you know, they've done their job. So now we're going to focus on the Sorpe Dam. Now, the Sorpe was a different type of dam, as we discussed earlier. And it was very much like a pyramid shape. So to attack this dam, they couldn't do the same method. The plan for this dam was to fly along the crest of the dam and drop the bomb directly onto the crest of the dam. And hopefully, with five aircraft hitting the same spot, this would cause a breach in the dam. Um, Joe McCarthy was the first pilot to attempt this. Uh, he actually did 10 passes of the dam before dropping his bomb. When he dropped his bomb, he hit and he cracked the, the ridge of the dam, but no breach. The next pilot was Brown. As he arrived, the mist and the dust from the first bomb uh, caused him to not realize exactly where he was going. Um, when he realized he was actually facing the wrong way, he had to perform what is called the stall turn. Now, this is something that I have done in an aircraft before. It's hilarious fun. Um, you basically put your plane up to vertical to the point that the engines stall and then you drop back down to earth at a plummeting speed, wait for the engines to kick back in and then you've picked your speed back up. It's really fun to do in a small aircraft. I can imagine in a Lancaster bomber that's 100 foot wide um, is probably not that fun under constant fire and having to perform a maneuver like that at sort of a low altitude as well um, is a very dangerous thing to do. So it's not something I would want to have done in that situation. He then had six attempts and dropped his bomb on the sixth. Again, hitting the dam perfectly, but again, no breach of the dam. The rest of the attackers for this uh, either didn't make it or didn't didn't um, drop drop on time we, we don't know a huge about or i don't know a huge amount about them um i know that those two were the only two that managed to attack the sorbet dam out of the five um obviously daylight's coming now and they all aircraft are returning back to england now they went out with 19 aircraft they returned with only 11 and out of the 133 men who went out uh, 53 of them didn't return so the real cost of this seemed quite high. You know, the, the casualties, um, they breached two of the dams um, and, man and failed on the third. Um, but again, they lost 53 men and, and eight aircraft. So it wasn't, it wasn't necessarily a completely successful mission. The breach in the Myrna Dam um, was massive. And by midday the following day, 87% uh, of the reservoir had actually flown through that dam. It killed uh, just 
as, as an, an idea, it, the, the flow of water killed 800 people in a town eight miles away. Um, it also damaged the local towns. It also ripped up uh, infrastructure. It damaged over 100 factories. Um, it, you know, the flow from this reservoir was huge. It destroyed railway bridges. It destroyed power stations. Um, it killed over 1,500 people in the Myrna Valley. Um, you know, it, it was unbelievable how much damage uh, just a couple of bouncing bombs actually caused. Most people died from the simple fact that you hear an air raid siren, and we had them echoing in England at this time. Um, air raid sirens forced you into an underground bunker where any debris that fell on you were you would be safe. What it didn't account for was a 10-foot tidal wave coming from, you know, millions of tons of water flowing down a, a valley. Um, obviously, a lot of people died from just drowning. The Ada Dam, again, had very similar casualty rates and very similar success from the English side in the sense that it destroyed factories and armaments and power stations and things like that. Um, the German minister decided that this needed to be fixed as soon as possible. He actually moved around 27,000 men um, who would have been working on other types of construction across the German war effort um, to these valleys to rebuild the dams. Uh, many of them actually were working on what was called Hitler's Atlantic Wall. This is the wall of defence that the Allies came up against on D-Day. By October 1943, the Germans had repaired the dams back to the state they were at. So, yes, it was a good raid. Yes, it did a lot of good for the British. Um, it, it sort of stopped their war effort a little bit. Um, but, you know, in reality, they had those dams rebuilt within six months. So, you know, to lose 83 men for almost no real gain seemed a little bit pointless. Um, however, it is a story that has gone down in history uh, with England. Um, it's a story that they've made films about. Um, you know, Barnes Wallace, Guy Gibson, some of the most famous men in English history, thanks to the Dam Busters raids. Um, they did an unbelievable you know, job to the point that Germany actually stationed 10,000 troops on these dams after that because they didn't want them to go again. Now, we never attempted to attack them again, but those 10,000 troops were taken from other places. Um, so essentially, it would have weakened the German frontiers in different areas. It was, uh, it was a successful raid in the sense that they managed to breach two of the three um, it was unsuccessful in the sense that one, Germany managed to rebuild them within six months, and two, the loss of life was was quite high, um, a lot higher than what they probably would have expected. So there we go. For those of you who don't know the story, that is the Dam Busters, the story of 617 Squadron from RAF Scampton, just down the road from where I live in Lincoln. So very interesting story i think something a little bit different um something a little bit more more modern i think than some of the some of the things i cover 
Um, and, you know, World War II, this is one story from one month, from one year of six. You know, it's a, there's so many stories. I could literally just do the podcast purely on World War II. Um, I'm not going to do that. You know, I like to, to flit in and out here and there. So if you do have any specific things on World War II that you want to hear, let me know. Um, same goes for World War One. I. I will be covering, um, especially the Battle of the Somme. That's something I definitely want to be covering. So there are some really big events in history that we still have to cover. So, so thanks for listening, guys, and we shall talk to you next week. And just remember, we all have history, so make yours great. Bye-bye. Something you probably do know. Progressive can not only offer you a great price when you bundle home and auto, they offer you round-the-clock protection. Something you probably don't know, the average oak tree branch can hold 70 pounds. Something you probably do know, your neighbor is building their kid a treehouse. Something you probably don't know, a falling treehouse would take out your whole fence. Bundle your home and auto with Progressive and get more than a great price. Get round-the-clock protection. Something you know for the things you don't know. Coverage from Progressive Casualty Insurance Company, affiliates, and third-party insurers and subject to policy terms. Bundle discount not available in all states or situations. Geico presents Daily Affirmations. Repeat after me. Our thoughts are like the ocean. Our thoughts are like the ocean. Our thoughts create our reality. Our thoughts create our reality. We're thinking Geico offers claim service 24-7 with personalized attention from an assigned team. Geico offers claim service? Um, I wasn't thinking that. We think it and it becomes our reality. So, uh, what about washboard abs? Let's give it go think really hard okay abs abs abs, yep, abs keep thinking to manifest more geico in your life go to geico.com bundling home and car insurance with geico is so easy your neighbors are probably already doing it but who they may drop little hints like beautiful day out even more beautiful since we saved by bundling our home and car insurance with geico or yard work is hard much harder than bundling with geico which was easy or it may be even subtler like Speaking of burgers, we bundled our home and car insurance with GEICO and saved a bunch of money. Bundling is easy with GEICO. Just ask your neighbors. Bundling car and renter's insurance with GEICO is so easy, your neighbors are probably already doing it. But who? Look for the signs. Chances are they live in a home and have a car. They use money and enjoy having more of it. They probably drink lots of lemonade. Mmm, lemonade. And they've probably said something suspicious like, I'm bundling with Geico or stop spying on me with those binoculars. If so, you may want to ask them how easy it was to bundle with Geico. Bundling is easy with Geico. Just ask your neighbors.